heia cu langerușita, putcastul doamnă parușii ce-o tesu, ți-au și parei ce te. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the roadways is William Annis. Hello. And over, I forgot to ask where you are. Uh, you can say my name and then I suppose I'll tell you where I am. Okay. We have, uh, as a guest on the show today, J.S. Bangs, also known as Jesse Bangs. Hello. And uh, where are you, Jesse? I'm actually in western Minnesota, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Fargo. Oh, okay. All I know about Fargo is the movie. Sorry. Yeah, it's it's basically a documentary. So. <laughs> we expect pure vowels from you. <laughs> so the the trick there is that I wasn't actually raised in this area, so my my accent is much closer to the kind of the generic American. Um. Yeah, like I, I was, I grew up in Colorado, so that's my accent. No, yeah. no, I, I can, I can tell because I watched the movie and I know how those people are are talking in the movie. I don't know how accurate the the movie is, but it sounds like you know, there there definitely are people that talk like that in the movie. It's not everybody talks like that, as you know, as with most of the regional accents in America, they're gradually being worn away as migration and media and stuff replaces it with the the standard generic american accent uh but there are there is definitely um there there is definitely an accent to people who live who live there here their whole lives you can hear it they do they, their vowels are a little strange they have pure o's and they use the strange um some strange circumlocutions like i was i was so this is something that i do do that i was told by somebody else was non-standard and blew me away which is that um to say that you're going to come by I'm just going to come by his house or something is actually an upper Northwest regionalism and is not used by people from other parts of the country, which I had no idea. Right. It's a little borrowing from German. Yeah. Yes. William has talked about that on the show before, because that happens in Wisconsin. People use yeah. I in a lot of, uh, in that sort of meaning. So yes, I'm, I'm out here. Okay. So, uh, the, I knew you were in the same time zone. Cause that's, uh, that's, that's the thing that I need to know when I'm scheduling things. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, Jesse is a um, has been in the conline community for a long time, and I think this is something we usually ask for anyone who's who's coming on the show for the first time. But um, you know, what got you into conlanging? What 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 are your general? Well, just What's your story with conlanging? What got you sure. into it? What do you like to do con conlanging for? That sort of thing. Sure. Well, I got into conlanging in, I believe, the sixth grade as a result of uh, I, I moved to a private school and uh, I had a classmate who was this incredibly precocious linguist. And I use the term precisely. He in the sixth grade, I was studying Latin and classical Greek basically on his own recognizance. Um, and he was a huge aficionado of Tolkien and had studied Quenya and Sindarin to some extent. 
And he had then taken up the habit of creating languages and me and him became very close friends and he introduced the idea to me. And so that was when I started making up a, uh, making up a, a language. And the language I initially made up was, uh, ironically, the first or second language I made up was what eventually became Yivrian, which is the one I still, one I still have and still develop and is, is my oldest and most mature conlang. Although my concept of what the language actually is has changed dramatically, repeatedly over and over through the years. Um, you know, my very earliest conlang attempts were mostly tended towards idealistic languages, meaning that it was a language which was supposed to be perfectly regular and perfectly um, you know, represent philosophical concepts quite precisely and have all those kinds of neat things. Um, and then I realized that that is boring and went with and decided to, to go more towards naturalistic conlanging. And that's what I do now. So Yivrian was sort of retrofitted with a naturalistic frame on top of some idealistic underpinnings, which still sure shows through a little bit. It's a little too regular in a couple of places. Um, but yeah, so at this point, I... Um, I mostly do naturalistic and historical conlanging, where I have a proto-language and I have sound changes and I, de- I, I uh, derive new conlangs via that kind of a process. Um, and a lot of the stuff is set in a fictional setting, uh, the larger world of which I refer to as Aratasa, which is uh, on my conlang page. It's, that's the title of it. And um, uh, the first published novel set in the world of Aratasa called Stormbride was released uh, late last year at the very end of 2014. Uh, yeah, um, I believe I looked that up. Um, just a, a couple things. First first of all, so you're, you're kind of one of those people who will revise one language for a very long time. Yes. As opposed to, you know, there's some conlangers that produce tons and tons of sketches and then there's other conlangers that focus and do one language for like decades. Yeah. And I'm pretty much in the second camp, although I branched out, I have a language family that I'm working on now instead of just the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess you can be like a little bit in two in both camps, but I always find that interesting, that sort of divide. Um, between the the different types of conlangers, I am. Um, can I spend just a brief moment freaking out? I did a quick look to find out when we had previously talked about Yivrian on conlangery, and that was in November of two thousand and eleven. Yes, it, it was. <laughs> George, a- have we really been doing this for almost four years? Yes. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay, sorry. That just, seems great. So yes, episode 26 on quote-unquote emphasis also has us uh, discussing Yivrian. Yes, um, that's back when we did we did a, a topic and a conlang on the same episode, yeah. Right. So when you talk about now doing historical, did you go back and like retrofit, Yiv, retrofit Yivrian into this system? Have you produced proto-roots from Yivrian and then yep. gone forward and backward? So, yeah, so- really copying Tolkien. Yes. So my my internal lexicon, where I have all of my like the one that I use that's just for my personal use, which isn't online anywhere. I have I have my Yivrian lexicon, which is about two thousand entries, and then each of those has a proto form, except for ones which are borrowed. But you know, all the ones which are native vocabulary have a proto form, and then a a deep ancestral proto form. So the the you know the first form, which I refer to as common Yivrian. 
um, is at roughly the distance between, say, Spanish and Latin is the intended kind of amount of time and amount of change it's in there. And then there's a deep protoform, which is roughly uh, proto-Indo-European at that sort of depth from Yvrian. Sure. Um, so I have all of those. And, uh, and that is a retrofit, because as I mentioned, Yvrian was originally just created ex nihilo. And so what I did then, I, I did a couple of things. One is I did that kind of, um, and this has been an ongoing process, I did a kind of internal reconstruction of things that were already in Yvrian to see where I could suss out like half-formed regularities and then you know stipulate that they actually were completely regular in the parent language. And vice versa, where things were a little too regular, uh, one of the ways that I rationalized those was to assert that they were very recent innovations and that, in fact, in the proto-language, it did something completely different for, say, uh, the future tense. Because sure. um, the future tense in Yibrin is, is completely regular and is clearly built off of the present tense. So I, I, I stipulated that that's actually a, a different thing. And then I just did the deep past kind of just looking at that and sort of arbitrarily making up some sound changes, which I thought gave me fun things to play with so that my deep roots were different enough, were, were substantially different from the Yivrian forms so that I could derive them in a different direction and wind up with something that looked entirely different but still had pleasing, non-obvious historical connections because that sort of thing tickles me. Um, yeah, and so with Praseo, which is the language in the book Stormbride, uh, Praseo is a sister of Yivrian in that it's derived from common Yivrian. So it has a relatively recent ancestor, and um, th there's, a, there's a fair, a decent number of surface similarities between the like, two languages. So if you just were to compare the, the grammars side by side, you see that there's, they're, they're very similar in many cases, and the, and the vocabulary is pretty similar as well. Do I hear a nasal vowel in Proseo? I think I do. Uh, no, the, it depends on what you're, what you're asking to. So the, the name of the language is Praseu without yeah. any nasal vowels. The name of the people are the Prasei, which does have a nasal vowel on the second right. syllable. Okay. Okay. I was remember I was remembering tildes from looking at the, the grammar yes. document. There are abundant tildes in <laughs> the grammar. Um, I actually toned it down a little because my early versions of the rules was just nasalizing everything. And I was like, this is hideous. So I tweaked them and so it so it looked a little better. Sure. So what native <laughs> So yeah, what um, natural languages have you studied or speak? Uh, well, I'm fluent in Romanian, uh, aside from English, obviously. I'm fluent in Romanian. Uh, my wife is Romanian, and we speak primarily Romanian at home. Uh -huh. um, I have then studied, in the usual linguist sense, a whole bunch of different languages to a, a greater or lesser, usually lesser degree of competence. Um, I know a little bit of – I'm actually pretty good at ancient Greek um, – in that with the help of a dictionary, I can actually wade through classical authors pretty, pretty well. Um, huh. And I have studied a little bit of Latin, a little bit of Spanish, a little bit of Russian, a little bit of Thai, and a little bit of Hebrew. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out where the nasalized vowels come from, because I don't think Romanian does that. Or Romanian, Romanian does not have nasalized vowels. No. Uh, the nasalized vowel, well, wait, so I can't just make these things up? They have to be derived from some kind of natlang? No, it's not <laughs> in general. In general, conlangers avoid sounds that they have a hard time pronouncing. Oh, so, I'm able to pronounce them just fine. So the answer, though, to your question of where they came from, the answer is actually Portuguese. Uh -huh. um, 
so the reason, like the sort of the the, the idea that originally eventually turned into Praseo was that I wanted something which kind of sounded like Portuguese. Mm. So I decided to turn all of the nasal consonants, which are really abundant in Yivrian, into just nasalizing the preceding vowels and then do some other vowel elisions. And that's that actually gets you basically what you have in Praseo with, with okay. nasalization everywhere. And it's, it's particularly important in grammatical forms like the the noun morphology has lots of nasal nasal suffixes as part of the as part of the morphology mm. sure yeah okay That's... okay interesting interesting so we I, we, we uh, derailed you from the the world building talk but i wanted to get a few language questions in there first uh, I, I think it was done with the world building but basically yeah that, that's that's where that came from so um in the within the book of storm bride the uh Prasse and the yivrindi both appear as peoples. The Yivrindi are a much smaller role. The book takes place primarily around the city of Prasa, um, which is, of course, where the lang- what the language is named after. Um, but the Yivrindi do show up, and in fact, some of the only like untranslated conlang is actually Yivrian. The problem, the, the reason, of course, being that the characters all speak Praseu, so their speech is rendered as English in the sure. context of the story. Um, yeah. The Yivrindi, which is a foreign language to them, is rendered untranslated. Um, but you get what it means from context. So how did you get that past an editor? Uh, that was not too hard. I, when I say there's only a little, I, I literally mean I think there's two sentences. Okay. Um, and in context, it's very clear what they mean. And it's dialogue, right? So the, a, a character who does not speak Yivrian is in a chariot with somebody and the Yivrian speaker who's next to her says something in Yivrian and then the chariot driver goes forward. And so you, it's obvious that he's just, you know, telling the driver to get started. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that, that is, that's about the extent of it. And that's, you know, because most editors will rightfully uh, attempt to prevent you from putting lots and lots of conlangs in your book, sure. um, but they're quite happy if you put it up online as a, as a companion, which is what I've done. Right. So, so, so that's up, what uh, that's interesting that they're yeah so we've seen in the last few years this growth of conlangs in film and television where it's harder to get away with faking it right whereas in a novel in my opinion a conlang is never required because a good writer can write around it right and as you say probably most editors would object to large chunks of undigested conlang or even digested conlang <laughs> in, in a novel. But the idea that they like it as a tie-in, that's interesting to me that they recognize the value in that as another way to engage fans. I, you know, you'd have to talk to people who are editors. I'm actually not sure the degree to which they necessarily want it as a tie-in in the sense that it's something that they look for, mm. but it's something that they recognize as an item of interest like editors and authors in general are are interested in in knowing that you have additional things to offer to fans. So you know it can be hidden scenes or deleted scenes or just extras like photographs or or I, I don't know, just stuff so that people who are interested in become get engaged with the work have something that they can look at, which provides some extra deep background for them. And I have attempted sure. to put a lot of that stuff up on my Conlang site where it's formatted as a wiki and it has a nice layout and it's easy enough to read for people who are, you know, who are interested in learning about the language and seeing uh, what's going on there. Um, so in, yeah, uh, my, 
my editor never made a single comment about um, about the conlang that appears into it in it, um, except she actually originally uh, one of them was tra- one of the conlang sentences was translated, and she actually said, "Take this out. It's completely obvious from context what he said." Oh, nice. That was nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to depend a little bit on your story and on what exactly, you know, the conlang is doing. If people right. are just communicating, you can easily write around that. But like, you know, if you're using a particular language for magic or something, you might sure. have a little bit more of it. But definitely, I I can see like you don't necessarily want to overload readers with Right with uh, conlangs, and, right. and then you also have yukut, if I'm pronouncing that right, which obviously has very little detail, but is there to let you come up with names that are right. consistent. Yep, and I, I'm actually very proud of of yukut. Um, I I think that there is a lot. That I think that there is a, a good naming language is an underappreciated art form for conlangers. Yeah. Um, it's a good naming language is like a good pencil sketch. Right. I mean, there's obviously a difference in time and scope and detail between a pencil sketch and like a full blown, uh, you know, painted oil canvas or something. But there's still you can do a lot in a good sketch that 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 goes a long ways. And that's I actually like Yakut a lot. It has just enough lexical material and just enough phonological material to create something that looks consistent and convincing. And where if I ever decide I want to flesh it out entirely, I'm pretty sure that I haven't dug any pits for myself because it all like i know the phonology and i have some basic uh basic ideas about morphology and i think it's it, it works really nice i can i can say that makes a lot of sense to me a good naming language you still need to do a fair bit of work because you need phonology you may need some morphology you may even want to do a little bit of historical stuff if you like have an idea of this is related to other languages that you're developing further, or you might want to develop right. it further. So, right. yeah, it's, 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 it's something you have to think about. Yep. And it's, I mean, to be perfectly honest, so here's where the, where the ranting part starts. You know, most books which are not written by people specifically interested in language, fantasy books written by people not specifically interested in language, have a ridiculous amount of of just wrongness in terms of how the languages oh. are put together. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, that, that could probably be the topic of an episode all its own. Oh, no. um, if you <laughs> looking looking at the like the names in George R. R. Martin's books, right, often make no sense to me at all. Right, uh, yeah, the fact. That David J. Peterson was able to put together Dothraki as well as he did, given that he was just starting from a non-linguist who was making up names, is really impressive. And he deserves full kudos for that, because that is that is incredibly difficult. And, yeah. Um, I recall some time ago, somebody on the conlang list actually reconstructed a vampire language for, um, what was it? It was the one with Wesley Snipes. Blade. Blade, yes, and did an incredible amount of work and just really, really beautiful work on that. And I was, I was really impressed by what he did. And then they didn't want to pay him because they thought they thought that he was asking for too much money, um, which was <laughs> which is incredibly disappointing. Was, which and it was, a, yeah, they lowballed him seriously, terrible. Yeah, as I recall. Yeah, which is you a, know, I think um, that if that were to happen today, I think that 
that it would have a lot more credibility because the notion of having a whole language for your science fiction series or, or, you know, movie is so much more credible and so much more widespread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was maybe a little bit before it's time. Alas. Yeah. I think it took Lord of the Rings to really push it over the edge. Lord of the Rings, definitely just because they have all that un, un trans, well, subtitled, but, but raw, uh, Sindarin mostly in there. Uh-huh. Um, what was the, there's a couple of them. I mean, Game of Thrones is another big one, but there's another one that that's escaping my mind right now. Oh, of course, Navi. Um, yeah, was it was I think the other one where because of course Tolkien's languages were in existence before they made the movies, whereas Navi was specifically done just for the movie and kind of I think created the baseline is that if you're making a big sci-fi or fantasy epic, people kind of expect you to put some effort into the language. Sure, sure. I think what. The Lord of the Rings movies, though, convinced directors and producers was that large quantities of non-English was okay in these sorts of movies, that the audience would not be put off by that. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, so um, there was ground <laughs> uh, a groundwork uh, already there for David Solo to work off. So it wasn't like they were creating something new. Um, like right. they did finally in Avatar. But yeah, between the two of them, they've really set up a, an interesting time. Yeah. I mean, it's a great time um, to be a conlanger. You've got lots of high-profile conlangs out there. Um, yeah. And and a, a high-profile conlanger, which is a thing that didn't even exist until about 10 years ago, <laughs> unless you count Mark Okrand. Right. Which he wasn't really that high-profile. It was right. It was the Klingon people knew him, but not very many people else right. knew him. Right. So, but for literature, it's a different set of challenges because you can't, there's no such thing as subtitling in a book. So you can't put in tons of conlang on, and, and then, you know, quote unquote, subtitle it or do side by side translation. Although it would be a really interesting thing to try maybe as a gimmick or, or, or a, uh, in, in some book, but that's also a lot of effort that honestly, I don't know that I want to go through. I think there uh, have been I'm, some self-published things where somebody wrote like a whole story in a conlang and did a translation. Right. But it's, it's a very, very niche audience. For it's that. extremely niche. And the thing is, so if you're trying to sell to a slightly broader audience, there's a limit. So I'm just going to take my own book again as an example. There's a limit to how much raw conlang you can put in there. So I make no attempt to discuss the grammar of the languages or their historical relationships or to give you more than, like I said, two sentences of untranslated Yivrian in the book, just because a, a, a general reader, a general readership is not that interested in it. Hardcore fans, maybe, but you don't want to get, put all this stuff in there where everybody has to kind of wade through it. Particularly because you can't provide subtitles as the, you know, like they do in a, uh, on a television show or a movie. But what you can do, and what I tried to do is just describe a realistic linguistic situation. So if I'm, I, I, I believe that there are actually five different named languages within Stormbride, which is four more than exist in most fantasy books. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the reason for that is just that I, you know, every time that there were people together who had a reason to not speak the same language, I had them not speak the same language. And then I just put a little bit of effort in to figure out, okay, these people have different languages, but they do also communicate. So what language do they use to communicate? And so that's why you have this language called Guza, which we know there's no, no words in Guza, including the word Guza, which is actually the Praseo word for the language. 
appear anywhere in the book. It's just stated that that is the trade language which is used for communicating between these couple of different tribes. And that's and then it becomes actually a plot point in a couple of places that two people from different tribes can't talk to each other because neither of them ever bothered to learn Guza. Um, aside from like some very, very basic vocabulary that one of the peoples knows. And so they do manage to like not kill each other, but they that's about the extent of it. Um, so and then likewise, I then put a little bit of effort. So when a language is a character is hearing a language that's not their native language, they sometimes make comments on what the phonological quality of it is. Like Yakat is described as is described as growling and rumbling, and uh, Praseo is talked about as slippery, um, which comes to the fact that it's, it has a lot of syllables and it has it has a lot of different um, places of articulation for the syllables. Um, it has an apical and a laminal and a retroflex and a and a, a, a palatal. Um, and you know, so things like that. So basically I tried to, it, you know, the linguistic situation is realistic and is fully, uh, fully developed, even if I don't actually dive into the details of the language itself in the text. Right. I feel like that, um, having your characters describe another language is going, it must be a very difficult thing. That's, that's something I think about when I'm reading stuff. I'm reading fantasy novels and they talk about a different language and like, you know, it's always guttural. Yes. Guttural. It's definitely described as guttural if it's not English. Yeah. Guttural just doesn't mean anything. I've seen it (laughs) in so many contexts and I've seen it describing real languages in that are different enough that I don't, I don't know what you mean when you say that. (laughs) Um, But like, and then there's a, there's, there's an issue of, you know, there's there's also authors who like um, I'll pick on um, Patrick Rothfuss, who I love, but like he describes what's the name of the those those guys, the mercenary guys. Um, he describes their language in this weird way, talking about how the the quote unquote cadence affects the meaning of a word, and every word has three meanings, and I'm like. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Was that oh my groan God, of agony? I hate that so much. Yes, it's like is it is it stress? Is it pitch accent? Is it tone? What is it? So, if we're gonna put the most favorable possible spin on this, because keep in mind that we're in 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 those books, and I've only read the first one in that series, so and I don't recall this. So I'm thinking it must come in the second book. Yeah, um, he meets he meets some of these these people. right. So. The our POV character Kvoth is not is I think mono well no because he learns what's the one the language they called Illish or whatever so he knows a couple languages I'll take that back but that may be a linguistically unsophisticated way of describing I would guess pitch accent or possibly tone or possibly I would guess language. tone if the meaning is supposed to be changed right but then but the statement that there are three every word has three meanings is. As an as a literal description is is rubbish. It, it, that, that's then, just not yeah. well. You could take it as something something like that he's exaggerating or something. And Kvoth is is a storyteller. He's like a professional almost in storytelling because of his background. So he might be doing selective exaggerations and things. But I, yeah, it's. But I just think of, and that's the thing that you said. Th- talk that I'm thinking about is like 
you have to have an idea of what the language is and then talk in a way that the readers might understand somewhat what you're talking about and in a way that your character who may not necessarily be or in a fantasy setting probably isn't linguistically sophisticated in the way that a modern linguist would be would right. describe them right you know some of the most the most fun uh, fantasy books I've read though actually have characters who are in who are linguists in the sense that is is applicable to their setting and there are some really fun things you can do there where I'm trying to think of one um, there's actually a very a, a very famous fantasy short story that or a science fiction short story that involves trying to set a communication with a, a species of aliens mm-hmm. who um, who experience time nonlinearly. And whether or not that makes any sense uh, is you know an exercise for the reader. But it's uh, she does a very good job of describing the way their language actually encodes all that information for for nonlinear um, nonlinear communication. And uh, another one that I can think of called um, I'm going to forget the title of it. We'll have to put all these in the notes. Where it's about a species of of chameleonic frogs who actually communicate by uh, by changing the patterns of colors on their backs. Hmm. And the character yeah, has to spend I, a lot of time uh, deciphering that and, and determining how to how to uh, how to communicate with them. How to respond? Get a blank right. panel? Like, yep. You know. And yeah, I have to confess the suspicion of the practicality of such modes of communication, but I'm known to be suspicious of these things. Um, what was I going to say? The only novel, apart from volume three or episode three of Lord of the Rings, that involves like a long description of linguistic information I can think of in an even remotely effective way is Ursula K. Le Guin's Always Coming Home. Ah. That is a but that is that, one of my all time favorite books. Oh my goodness! But that's presented as sort of this weird anthropological artifact Correct. where you have little interludes where the culture is described and historical things, and so it's a different. It's not a novel in the well. I mean, it's a novel, but it doesn't present itself in the, as a normal sort of novel. Right. So a linguistic description there kind of makes sense and is part right. of the experience. But I, usually, I'm not sure most people can get away with that. I have. Um, yeah, that that's a really interesting book, particularly because the sort of metafictional structure of that book is so so odd. Yeah. Where it's the, the conceit seems to be that Ursula K. Le Guin herself has somehow traveled into the future and studied these people as an anthropologist and come back and these are this is her her essay of notes about them. But yeah, the, the, so I have I have issues though with the the thing I've described in that book. Is not strikes me as very highly unnatural, um, but that's maybe a topic for a different day. <laughs> yeah, I've, it's been so long since I've looked at it. I don't actually have a hardcover copy. Right. Um, I mean, it's there so that you can sort of read the dictionary and learn interesting things right. about the people. So those yeah. words exist as a foil for for the rest. For of the ring, yeah, for the right. for the rest of the thing. Right. Yeah. Um, in a certain sense, like you know, half of that book is appendix for the other half. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, a, it's it's an interesting. That's, yeah, it's, interesting it's, it's a very good book, though. It's a thing that I'm I'm going to have to be thinking about because I've had like a story in the works for a while that the point of view character is a linguist studying an alien language, so. 
he'll have to be able to describe what's going on a little bit. Although he's it's yeah. focused more on events that are happening between humans meeting these aliens. But um, right. right. I mean, another author who does that reasonably well is C.J. Cherry. Yes. Uh, I've, yeah. read, I've read one of the, the C.J. Cherry books, I remember. And, I've read, uh, I have a stack of C.J. Cherry books on my nightstand right now. I, I cleaned out my local used bookstore of everything they had of hers just to read through the Backward catalog. Um, I don't recall very many places where she describes language in much detail, though. Do you have a particular book in mind? Well, any of the Atevi books, starting with Foreigner, I think... Yeah. Doesn't necessarily. I mean, it gives a few words and bits of undigested conlang, but the point um, there is to sort of talk about these. And this is something she does a lot: these uh, this impedance between how humans understand the world and how aliens understand the world. And she does alien anthropology better than most. Yes, she does. So again, the the language discussion is there is is minimal in the sense that details are not gone into, and yet she talks about it a lot. Another great author for this is Frank Herbert, who never invented a conlang, but says interesting things about language all of the time, um, most of them not idiotic and, and sometimes uh, challenging. Uh, so it, it can be done to have language-focused uh, works of fiction without necessarily having to go off for a year or two or five um, or longer to <laughs> concoct a language to go with your culture. Right. So when you first invented Yivrian as a teenager, did you imagine a culture with it already? Or did it get, as you went more historical, it became something that you could use for your novels? How did those interact? Um, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there was always a kind of culture attached to it. Um, but somewhat along in the same way that the language evolved, the culture evolved, um, the, the very early forms of the culture were also highly idealistic in the sense that it attempted to implement what I kind of, I imagined as an ideal or perfect society. Um, yeah, to some extent, sort of, but as time went on, much like, much like ideal languages are boring, uh, utopias are boring. And so it became a lot more rough edges were added to it. And honestly, a big part of this was simply growing to understand more what the cultures I kind of was interested in were actually like, which can take a surprisingly long, a surprisingly long time, um, particularly because, you know, if you just have a typical high school education, you have a really, really badly distorted idea of what ancient paganism was actually like. Um, because all you, 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 what you learn about it are a handful of, of crazy stories about Zeus and maybe some of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so you then assume that ancient pagan religion was about believing in those things in much the same way that, you know, a fundamentalist Protestant believes in all the stories of the Bible, despite the fact that that's almost entirely missing the point of what those the function that those stories served within ancient paganisms um and that becomes even more the case if you then look into like native american and other um more uh for lack of a better word shamanistic or um sorts of sorts of culture the frame of reference from which you, that you're likely to have before you look at it really deeply is is going to be pretty misleading so um the everyday were conceived as pagans 
by which I mean polytheists, I should say that instead of pagans, which has a bad connotation. They were conceived as polytheists early on, but my conception of what polytheism, what that actually meant and how that was actually going to work out um, was pretty bad at first um, in the sense that it, it didn't make any sense. It was, it was really, really heavily influenced by Tolkien's understanding of the, of the Valar. Sure. Um, and in fact, it, it's down right now, although it will come up eventually. But I actually have a very long Yvrian text, which tells a creation myth, which is extremely derivative of the Ainu Lindeli. So much so that I'm not, I'm a little embarrassed of it and almost don't want to put it back up. Um, except that it's like 3,000 words long and entirely in Yvrian, which is a pretty darn impressive achievement. Um, right. So, but it's kind of like, at this point, it's kind of like second tier canon. Like, the actual names of the gods as they appear in that one are, I think, accurate for the Ivrian can or the Ivrian pantheon as I currently imagine it. But the story itself, I don't think, is actually canon for the purposes of my novels. That's that's interesting that you think uh, that you created a, a a polytheistic pantheon with an understanding of. Tolkien's Valar, which is, you know, if you get right down to it, the, you know, what the the Valar are are basically angels. They're not really right. gods right. the way that a polytheistic society understands multiple gods. Well, yeah, it only intersects and explodes when you hit Neoplatonism, which is what a lot of yeah yeah. So I mean, there was an attempt to retrofit something it was closer to um yeah this is part of the point right so so ancient paganism in its high in its higher forms is not really about zeus and athena as you know as basically superhumans it's more about you know the the super the divine being expressed or personified in these various myths which have you know, a lower meaning and then a higher allegorical meaning, and it gets very complex and things like along those lines. Um, and that, I think, is part of what I was getting at, whereas my initial take on Yubrian culture was extremely literalistic in terms of how they, how I thought the religion was supposed to work, and then I, I backed away from that. And the other thing that happened is that as I was kind of trying to, you know, looking around for more things to throw into the stew, the world-building stew there, I kind of hit upon Native American motifs as, at least for things like architecture and art. And that brings in a whole different kind of um, a whole different kind of influence and, and, and a whole different set of, I guess, worldview and, and culture and uh, that, that then impacts the way that the whole religious system is supposed to work. So, and, and the, the religious stuff is actually very, very present in Stormbride. And I'm, I personally am very happy with the way Stormbride turned out. Um, I wouldn't remotely claim that it represents a Native American worldview. It doesn't. What it represents is the Yivrian, speaking broadly of the whole cultural sphere, um, it represents the Yivrian worldview, which has elements of classic Greco-Roman and um, sort of uh, Hindu philosophy and Native American approaches and sort of the Tolkienian crypto-Christian, like all of those are kind of mixed into it, mixed in there. So... Um, it is, I think, at this point, it's its own thing, but it has elements of all this other stuff. Yeah, that's a complex cultural stew. Right. <laughs> and, of course, it's stewing in my head. Like, obviously, the the within-world history is much more 
well, obviously doesn't have any any Hinduism or Christianity in it because those don't exist. Right. But yeah. Well, I'm always puzzled when people say that uh, utopias are boring for the simple reason that people still get sick, people still die, people still have family problems. I'm not sure how utopias are supposed to fix human nature as opposed to organizing a society to minimize avoidable savagery. (laughs) Right. But that's. To to step back to what we were talking about a couple minutes ago, that's. I, I think that a lot of what Always Coming Home is, is. Le Guin's attempt at making a believable and non-boring utopia. Yeah. Because she very clearly likes the culture of the Kesh a lot and thinks that it's a good culture. Um, But they still have conflict and they still have change and people within the Kesh are still assholes sometimes and things like that. Right, right. And and Kim Stanley Robinson plays a lot with those ideas as well and he definitely Mm -hmm. regards... And there's a lot. Ian and Banks' culture novels are, I think, along the same lines... Or that's obviously a far future technological society, but he explicitly Except their their robots have personal problems. <laughs> right. Um so how do you let me see, how can I ask this question? It is often said, not entirely correctly, that Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings to provide a culture for his languages. Mm-hmm. That may be a little overstated. So what was the relationship or is the continuing relationship, if you have plans for more novels, between the language and the novel? Since clearly the novel doesn't even use as much of the conlang directly, at least as even Tolkien did. And how do you find a balance between falling down the conlang rabbit hole and never writing, you know, chapter 12? <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's a good question. So I'm not quite as bad as, as Tolkien in that... Um, I find the culture and the story interesting for their own sakes, even if they have no conlang in them. Mm. And I have even been known to write stories which have no conlangs in them at all. <laughs> so, so it is a thing that can happen. Um, what I would say is that um, I, I would actually almost put it the other way. I, it's not so much that the culture exists for the language, but rather that the story exists for the culture. Um in that I I write the stories because I have this imaginative setting that I've been that I have been working on for uh, oh what over twenty years now, and I'm very excited by it and I want to share it with people, and so I write these I, I find places in the imagined history and in the imagined cultures where interesting things are happening, and I then write stories about those interesting things. Knowing that, then I'm, I have I have cleverly tricked my readers into learning a bunch of things about the culture that I invented. Now I'm, I do keep a strong eye on the fact that it has to be interesting on its for its own sake, yeah. and this is this is something that I think some conlang writers don't. Well, so in in writing, we talk about world builders disease because this is actually nothing specific to conlanging. But anytime that you're writing science fiction or fantasy and you're you have a lot of world building, there's this incredible temptation to just let me show you all the things right. with the yeah. world building. And yeah. good authors know to resist that temptation, and I try very hard to be a good author and resist that temptation. So if I'm going to show you a thing, um, it's going to be because that thing is relevant to the story. Uh, or at least I'm going to do, try my darndest to make it relevant to the story. There are there are some cases um, where I actually have story ideas in you know on the back burner or things that I want to develop where 
from my perspective as an author, the whole reason why I want to tell this story is because it shows off a particular aspect of the world building that I think is cool. Um, but I, when I, I, even if I can go in there with that idea, I know that I still have to make the story worthwhile for itself. Sure. Um, and that's why, you know, that's why I said it's, it's sometimes useful to write stories that have no conlangs in them at all, because of course I'm, I, I take my craft as a writer very, very seriously. Um, possibly more serious than I take my craft as a conlanger just because my craft as a writer has a direct impact on how many readers I can reach. Whereas my craft as a conlanger is, you know, my skill as a conlanger is something which is only even legible to this tiny, you know, internet sub niche. Right. Right. But it is meaningful to me. It's like, you know, what the quote that's attributed to Michelangelo, he knows if the, if he didn't do the, uh, the details correctly on the Sistine Chapel. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, but I do take shortcuts, right? Like as we discussed earlier with uh, Yakut, where it's uh, – I, I didn't make a whole language for that because I didn't have time and it wasn't that important to me. It was like I need these people to come. No, I need these people to come. I, I knew that was part of the story was that they were they were coming from a far different place. They had this unrelated language. So let's get as much as we need to get it on the page and then you know, it's there if, in case I ever want to go back to it. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean I've never – written a novel. I do not aspire to write a novel. So I don't know, in general, how much gets tossed onto, we'll use another, another media uh, metaphor, tossed onto the cutting room floor. In film or television, vast amounts of material produced, which is never seen. Um, and I know that's true uh, from some consulting work I've done in video games. Enormous right. amounts of work is done in the background, which may inform the final product, but is never shown because, as you say, you do not need to show all the things. You have yeah. a story to tell. That is absolutely the case in writing. I think every writer, even writers working in entirely realistic genres, uh, will have tons of information which they know which is meaningful and irrelevant to them as the creator of the story but which does never appear on the page in the finished product and it informs them but it doesn't it isn't required for the reader to know it um yeah. i believe that um uh, getting the name william faulkner was famous for having this incredibly detailed family uh, family histories and geographies and and maps and everything of the um, you know, the fictional county in the deep South where he said his stories, whose name is something that I is impronounceable and I can't remember what it is. Um, and that like I said, he's writing an entirely realistic genre, but he still spent tons of effort in understanding the family histories and the backgrounds of the characters, most of which never really appeared on the page. And the same thing is true in spades for science fiction and fantasy writers so much so that the biggest, one of the biggest pitfalls for for beginning science fiction and fantasy writers is that they're put too much of it on the page. Mm -hmm. um, and I myself have to rein that instinct in when there's things going on that or where, where I'm putting things onto the page which doesn't actually contribute to the story and which is actually taking away from the reader's enjoyment. I either have to find a way to make that information actually relevant to the story or I have to put it out and even, put it in the appendix somewhere. Even really good genre fiction writers that are you know recognized as really good can fall into that i've seen i've i've uh read a couple times reading like isaac asimov sometimes he falls into just giving you this giant info dump that's not really necessary <laughs> yeah i think late george r r martin might possibly <laughs> 
fall into a this little, camp as well. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. There's uh, there's a lot of Tyrion this. talking about uh, like stuff he's read. A soup song. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's. I mean, so much of this show we talk about conlangs as just sort of artifacts in themselves. But when you shove a conlang into some other narrative art, it becomes, it has to be chewed through this whole process. And maybe right. it's a little hard for us sometimes to say, well, you just have to throw that all out. Yeah. Um, although these days with websites, right, you can still share it on a website. So there, right. there becomes a, a possibility there that didn't exist before. Right. And that's what we have here. We have, you know, I have the full or I mean, it's not it's not a terribly comprehensive grammar, but it's a pretty it's a pretty decent grammar of the Praseo language up on jsbangs.conlang.org. And uh, I'm quite happy to have it up there. And a lot of people have taken a look at it. And um, I mean, I'm pretty happy with with how it came out. Uh, But it is, of course, completely extraneous to the text of the book itself. And it would be probably a, a big mistake to try to put this most of this stuff into the book yeah yeah and i know there are some authors these days even who publish short snippets of this scene was cut or this didn't add anything but yeah especially if they're very fond of certain characters will enjoy the opportunity to read that stuff that gets yeah the you know deleted scenes is actually kind of a big thing where authors will will provide that stuff to their newsletters kind of as an incentive for fans to to sign Mm -hmm. up um, so they can get these those extra those extra bits. I haven't done any of that because honestly, I don't think I have any deleted scenes of any particular value. Um, I should maybe look through my old snippets file to see if I have something in there. But um, I, I, I'll take the conlanging and the world building. You know, there are world building details about the history of the Yakut and the history of the Prase, which are up on the website, which are not as not anywhere in the text. So if you're that interested, you can read those up there. And there's. I feel like there's another form of this stuff that's left out. That's stuff that's really like a part of what what you made, but is doesn't need. But it's like it's reflected in something else that happens. Very much like a conlang, you don't need to talk much about grammar details of a conlang. But if you have any conlang text in the thing. Then you know, creating the whole conlang before that will help you to generate that. Yep. Um, and I think you know, probably the same thing can go for cultural history and religion and stuff. Yep. Yeah. The um, well, and this comes up interestingly in Stormbride because all of the character names in Stormbride have meanings. Uh, the main female character Uya Uya means minnow. And so I could have just called her Minnow in the story, but I chose not to. I chose to use the transliterated name rather than the – actually, this reminds me of thing I want to come back to. I chose to use the transliterated name rather than the, uh, the translated name precisely because I want to give a flavor of the language. And using names that mean things creates a very different impression on the English-speaking reader, particularly mm-hmm. because we come from a, uh, you know, a culture in which – Language names don't mean things. And so when you see a name that when you see characters named Minnow and Raven, which are two of the characters that appear in the book, um, it, it puts you in a particular frame of mind, which is actually not the frame that I wanted the reader to interpret the story in. That's a, an interesting thing that even I've seen that come up even in um, cases of translating from another language. 
uh, sometimes in English translations of Chinese stuff, a lot of Chinese names are have transparent meanings, and sometimes the translator will actually translate the names. Right. Uh, so it gets it 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 gets kind of odd sometimes when that happens. Right. It's, it, and it's like it marks it as foreign to the reader even more heavily than having it be, you know, having the name be Li Xin yeah. is one thing, but then I have no idea what Li Xin means, but, you know, having it be a word makes it foreign to the reader in a completely different way. Yes. It's really interesting. I've never heard anyone really mention that. That's a really interesting point. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I have to think about that. It would be like, like if you go with place, place names, like, you know, if I have a story about Shanghai, Probably I'll just call it Shanghai, but if I, for some reason, decided to translate it as over the sea, that becomes very a very weird, different kind of story. Yep. So I mean, if you call if you call Beijing northern capital, that's a it tells you something different. And it gives you a different point of view on the events. Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I can imagine, like, so there's a there's a city in Romania called Kumpulung, which is not far from where my wife lives, and Kumpulung transparently means the long field. And if I were interested in it, I could you could completely nativeize that into something like call it just long field, which would be mm-hmm. a plausible English place name. But by doing that, you you almost destroy the fact. Like, you, if I tell you there's a place called Longfield, you're going to imagine some place in rural England. If you hear that the name is Kumpulung, you at least realize that it's not actually in an English-speaking country. Right. Yeah, it's a uh, like another thing is um, a variation on uh, what TV tropes calls call a rabbit a smear, right? Where mm-hmm. often they'll do this with like um, uh, with words for um, for things that are like loan words or something. Right. But they'll invent a word. And this is not necessarily writers who are conlangers, but like they're they're inventing words on the spot. Like there there was a book I read recently, Tigana, where like they add something that's sort of like that for everything all its description seems to be coffee, but they call it chav. Yes. K H A A V. Yep. That's a that's incredibly widespread. I've seen that in actually C J Cherry's books where People are drinking coffee all the time, but they never call it coffee. Yeah. It's always something else. Do you do any uh, – I'm revealing that I haven't actually read your your books <gasps> to prepare shame. for this. But uh, I may pick them up to to read them after this because uh, you, you all this stuff is very interesting to me. But do you do any of those techniques of like maybe translating things or making – making new words, even English words or conlang words for different kinds of things? Yeah. Every, you know, to, to be utterly banal, every word you choose uh, impacts the story. And in a word like this, where you're in an invented setting, choosing to use an English word or a conlang word is a significant, a very significant choice because it, it changes what, you know, how the reader perceives it. So if I'm reading, to take your coffee example, when I'm reading a, a, uh, a science fiction or fantasy story and I, and I come see something which is pretty clearly coffee but which is called by something else. In my mind at least, I interpret that to be that, okay, this isn't actually coffee. It's not from the bean which is native to West Africa or East Africa. 
it's something which is similar though. It's some, some kind of brewed, bitter, hot drink. Okay, so I accept that and then move on with my life. Um, I had an interesting choice along these lines in um, in Stormbride. One of the one of the only not one of the only Yivrian words that's used like in line in the text is Enna. And that is the word that's used for the family unit. And that was because I could not find an English word that had the right connotation, the right scope. Because I could have called it a clan, but a clan implies a much larger grouping that's like, you know, people who are, who are rather distant related, who are, you know, probably hundreds of people constitutes a clan. And the Anna is much smaller than that. I didn't want to call it a tribe. I didn't want to just call it a family, although that was probably the closest, because the Anna in, in the Praseo culture is it's it's an extended family it's all the people who have a single who share a living ancestor are together in an enna and so you know that's three or four generations deep depending on how you know how old the ancestor is and since i after going back and forth and not finding a good term which fit the which fit the context i was like fine we'll just use the we'll just use the native one um and that is you know that goes together with the general question of how you, you know, what you call things in the context is, you know, I could have just used the English word clan and then relegated the details about the fact that it's maybe not quite what the reader would naively expect based on that to the appendix. But I decided that that, uh, this was important enough. I wanted the reader to notice the fact that it's not a familiar concept and so I put an invented word in there. And that's actually the biggest thing that happens when you add a conlang word into a story. You're b- demanding that the reader notice that there's something different about it. And so you have to make the choice of what is it important that the reader notice? What is it important that the reader should think of as not having a close correspondence with whatever English language concept they have? Right. And yeah, that's really interesting. And, and hopefully authors will use it like for Enna and rather than for coffee, where right. there's no conceivable need to come up with a special word for coffee, except for the fact that it's not supposed to be in this world. So maybe they feel embarrassed calling it coffee. <laughs> right? a- you know, some, co- some coffee fiend author says, I must put coffee in this book, <laughs> but I can't call it that. I don't I see coffee doesn't seem like one that I would choose, but I think of like, you know, this, this all depends on like what kinds of things you describe, but like, Things that sound a lot more like let that are that are more obviously borrowed from something. Like I don't know where oregano comes from, but it looks like it's borrowed from a romance language. Yeah, uh, things like that. Maybe I might want to replace, but it's still a little bit. You know, it's it's not a strong case when you're changing something like that. Then with Anna, where Basically, what you're talking about is a translatability issue, right? Where you can't find a specific word in English that translates that, so it's easier for you to use the conlang word and have some way of explaining what that means, right? I'm actually having this problem in a story that I'm writing right now, where I want a word that describes the servant who is directly responsible for the physical care of the master of the household. Now, in the English tradition, the name for that servant is a valet, um, a word that you've heard a lot as you've been watching um, Downton Abbey. But the the problem is that the word valet, in the first place, comes from French. It 
not totally nativized. At least it doesn't. When I see it, it still strikes me as a little bit Frenchy. And you mean, it, you mean valet? No, I don't mean valet. The word is pronounced valet when it's, really? in, when okay. it's in reference to the to this servant. It okay. is spelled exactly like valet, but okay. it is pronounced valet. Okay. Um, it, which is you know, which of course adds to the confusion. Right, so here's a so here's this word. You know, we have this word valet, which a a lot of readers are going to think is valet, and b clearly looks French when you look at it, and has heavy connotations of Victorian and late medieval context. But I'm not in a Victorian or late medieval context, and so I'm a little bit. I, I have not fully made up my mind. Currently, the draft, as I've written it, just uses the word valet because it's a one word which conveys exactly what I want to convey. Um, but I. I'm considering either making up a conlang word for it or else using some kind of circumlocution like body servant, which is another term that we use that basically describes the same thing, um, to to avoid the the negative, the the dissonance, the kind of cultural dissonance that using a right. word like valet brings in. But that's a it's a difficult problem, and it's a problem that that I think people writing speculative fiction face a lot and don't always get right, including me. Yeah, that's tricky because what I mean for me. The simple summation of the valet problem is using that in your – I mean, there's all sorts of words in English that carry enormous cultural baggage dragging along behind them, but we don't think about it very much, whereas valet immediately screams costume drama. Exactly. And so that particular word, even though perfectly fine English isn't going to work here because unlike the other words that carry along baggage, sort of subterranean baggage, right. this one sends up all sorts of – fireworks of, hey, I'm in a costume drama. Yeah, that's interesting, too. And different writers try to, to solve these problems in different ways. I mean, I have read some... I sometimes wonder if steampunk, among other things, is not a way to avoid these issues. You get to use all this beautiful Victorian terminology. Yeah. And technology. Exactly. But also magic and all of this stuff. And so you're not... The fight between the vocabulary you want to use and, and what actually is going on is, is they're, they're, not they're as, in line with each other, which makes yeah. it much much easier. But I'm still, uh, I, I don't know. I'm just sort of uh, the, shrugging along with it right now. I, have, I don't have a final answer to this. There's more than just language when you're doing that kind of world building thing. I have, you know, I've I have a fantasy world that someday I might try. I, I want to try to do like you um, and write novels in. I have like uh, one that's like a very short draft of one. But like one of my things is a lot of the government and a lot of the, that has inspirations from Chinese, you know, Uh dynastic Chinese society. And there's a thing of, I think about like, what colors am I going to describe things? Cause if I make everything red and gold, it's going to be like, this is China. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. So yeah. I can't Cinnabar do that. And, it, I, and it's like, you know, think about like not doing like food exactly like that or things like that. Yeah. Um, that, and that is a difficult problem. And sometimes it's what you want. Sometimes it's not what you want. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the one I'm working on right now, which is probably going to be released next year, um, is the, the culture is meant to evoke India, ancient India. Mm-hmm. Um, so insofar as, as, you know, the, the things I, the, the items and the, the words I use, I think that do that point that direction. I am perfectly happy with it, but you do have the problem because sometimes you do need to kind of put a little bit of distance in yourself and say, no, wait, this isn't actually 
the Mauryan Empire. It's it's something else. So let's let's just step back a little bit. And so you you insert conlang words and um and there's always... I, I have a terrible mix of like conlang words and Sanskrit words and Hindi words that I'm using all in the context of the book, which I think is going to be terribly confusing to the reader because I I think that a typical English reader is not going to know which which of those are real and which of those are invented. Um, so we'll have to see how that turns out. <laughs> Yeah, and there's always uh, there's always a chance uh, a a danger when you have like too much focus on one foreign culture that you might get things wrong and get do things that will upset people too. So yeah, that's a that's a that's a whole different ball of wax, which yeah. we can talk about maybe another time. Probably not not right now. That, well, I mean, I don't know. I wonder about if anyone ever thinks about that sort of thing with conlangs because i don't think like you'd have to get really into the conlang to even see those influences so that is a really interesting question actually it is an interesting question i don't know that i've ever heard that anybody bring that up before yeah yeah it can be you know i I want to inspiration from so many different sources but if you've got something that obviously looks like Navajo, or worse yet, some Tanoan language where those people in general do not want outsiders learning their language, then you run into some very difficult issues. Right. I don't know anybody who creates languages, especially not for artistic works these days, that derive so obviously from things. We, of course, oh, there's Star Wars, so which we must talk about. The first thing to my mind was actually um, the singer's language, Tuva, which is, as I understand it, it doesn't actually borrow any, any vocab directly, but it's 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 phonology and its general structure is very close to that of, I think Hopi or one of the mm. other Newton languages is spoken in the area, which Dirk is a is a, a leading expert in. Right. Um, and I honestly have never had never thought about that. It might be interesting to ask him if any of the native interlocutors that he knows a are aware of the conlang and b care. Right. Yeah. Um, Different groups are going to respond differently. I think there's, it seems to me, in general, you have the language as a sort of phonesthetic object, which is how most people interact with these things. Right. And then you have the very important, subtle, personal, uh, cultural things that might be encoded in that language. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, encoding important religious, social, cultural matter in your conlang is a much more touchy issue than having a phonology that makes one think of, you know, Chemawebi or something like right. that. Right. Yeah, that's 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 probably true. And that you know, we're three white guys talking about this. Right. <laughs> and uh like I'd like to hear from if there are anybody is anybody listening who, you know, is from uh a I don't know if there's anybody who is listening, but if there's anybody who's l- listening from a group that, you know, has a lot of, uh, has experienced a lot of like appropriation and stuff, what, what they think about this sort of thing in a, you know, you can do that in the comments or, or email us. That would be an interesting thing. But, uh, my general idea would be like when in my own conlanging, I feel more comfortable with using something from another language and using it as inspiration to create my own thing than copying 
something from an existing natural language, like wholesale. Sure. Well, no one. I mean, naturalistic conlangers don't want to do that anyway. That just becomes right. a, a relapse. It's not. It's kind of. It's kind of silly to do that anyway. Yeah. But uh, right. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Um. So popping off that briefly, whatever happened to the Art Langer's rant? That website is long gone. <laughs> Um, I took. Do you even want it coming back? <laughs> well, no. I, 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 so I uh, took that down at about the same time that I moved, like, wanted to make jsbangs.com my primary online hub. Uh-huh. Um, so I have everything from the old jasbacks.com saved, and it will all eventually reappear. I'll probably put some kind of, I don't know, disclaimer is probably the wrong word, but maybe like a an update and on my current thinking um, when I put those back up there, but I actually intend to have those up at some point in, you know, when I get those, that copious free time that we're all waiting for. Sure. Sure. No, that Um, would be very interesting. A commentary 10 years later, however many years it's been since you wrote that thing. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's more than 10 years. I think it's probably 12 years at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing too that I'm very excited is, you know, the Yivrian grammar, is all it was up there too. So the Yivrian grammar is nowhere online right now, and I just need to get the old HTML versions scraped together and put back up on my conlang.org page. So yeah, and I really would like to like to do that. One last comment that about about uh, Prasel. One thing that I because we're talking, talking about how to accommodate the English speaking reader. So one thing that I did that I just remembered that I did, and so I wanted to bring it up was that I actually um, hid some of my orthography from the reader specifically several of the names that appear in the book properly should have tilde's to indicate nasal vowels or accents on some of the consonants. Uh, and I took all those out in, in the main text of the book itself on the theory that um, the names are some of, some of the names are difficult enough for the reader anyway. Right. And so we don't want to add the additional stress of having to, See an accent mark, which, as we know, causes English speakers to break out in hives and or hide under covers. <laughs> and yeah, and you mentioned that's the you mentioned in your grammar document that you have a book orthography. That right. I assume that's what that is. Uh, I think that's a good idea for like names and such. Proposing some sort of like a a, a more of a, a nativized, anglicized name. Mm-hmm. works because you don't want to overburden people with a bunch of very foreign names that they can't pronounce. So did you just strip? Um, I just stripped them away. Yeah. Okay. Just stripped them off. You didn't um, come up with some alternate way to spell things. So yeah, I, some, some actors, some actors, some authors care a lot that pe- authors that people pronounce names properly and other people like, yeah, it's just a story. It's fine. So here's the thing. The, the biggest one, I actually did a little bit of both. Well, I'm trying to remember now. Um, I mostly just stripped them away, uh, except for the the s achek, which is sh, and the c achek, which is ch. I uh, replaced with sh and ch and ch respectively. Okay. Um, the one, the other ones, the nasal vowels, I just stripped away on the three. The English speakers don't want to pronounce those, and the s acute is meant to be a retroflex, which is another thing the English speakers aren't going to pronounce anyway. And so I, uh, I just took that out. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. It was, it was fine. Um, uh, 
it, it, none of the names were distorted so far enough that I was too worried about them. And it was kind of fun. So I talked to my parents who read the book, but who are not, A, not linguistically informed, and B, not big readers of the fantasy genre. And they said that the names were right up at the edge of what they were willing to accept before throwing the book across the room. So, <laughs> so I think I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I keep an eye on that. that it's, I don't want to alienate the, the less dedicated reader too much. Sure. Well, um, we're uh, running a little bit long. I'd love to have you on here for much longer. And uh, I have like questions about Praseo that I would like to ask you, but we've had a very long, wonderful discussion and I don't want to um, overtire the listeners. So um, I think uh, we can, we can start wrapping it up here. If you have any final things you want to say or, or anything mentioned where you can buy your books or whatever, then. Uh, yeah, I'll, I will give a quick plug for the book. The book, as we've mentioned a couple of times, is called Storm Bride from Red Adept Publishing. You can get it in ebook or paperback from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, basically anywhere where you can buy. I think the paperback is actually only on Amazon, uh, but you can get the ebook anywhere. Um, and it's it's a really fun story, and I think you'll like it. And if you're interested, uh, I do have an author newsletter that you can find at jsbangs.com. Um, and I have a new series uh, with set within the same world, which I'm probably going to launch next year. So you can look forward to that. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, all all right, right, thank you guys. It was great. All right. All right. Uh, with that, I'm going to say happy Conlining. Thank you for listening to Conlining. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. All of those are conlangery. And if you would like to hear your conlang featured on the top of the show, you can look at our contribute page. It has the instructions for what you need to translate and how to send it to me. Conlangery's web space is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our music is by Null Device. <laughs>